Welcome to the BNP Realm Podcast. This is your host, Brian, and thanks again for joining me. This week's episode is titled BNP R4, Bravely Facing the Paradox of Life's Grand Adventure. This episode ties into both current events and the two chapters of my novel, The Teacher and the Tree Man, that you'll hear this week. The penultimate and final chapters of book two, which means the halfway point of the novel. Just like these times we find ourselves in, these chapters are a pivotal point in the book, and, without spoiling too much, both these chapters and the point on our collective timeline, in my opinion, deal with the ultimate question of life and death that our modern culture has such a tough time coming to terms with. I'm revisiting one of the modern works of art in terms of popular culture that best addresses these weighty existential questions as I type this, and that is Pink Floyd's 1973 classic, Dark Side of the Moon. Perhaps it's not a mistake that I'm doing so now, as the opening track is titled Breathe, and I spent the previous two podcasts focusing on the importance of the breath and air. What's that? You didn't listen to them? That's okay. Go back and give them a listen when you get a chance. The first one details my use of the Wim Hof method, breathwork, cold showers, and my own gratitude meditation to help me through these challenging times. And the second episode, episode 19, is a playlist of airy tracks to help you take some deep breaths. Music, folks, really is a life-giving, life-saving art form, which is why I've included a bit more in this week's episode and likely will continue to do so in future episodes. Before I wind this intro up, I want to say it's been quite a journey thus far. This episode marks the halfway point of what I've planned for this podcast, which is really all about reading my book into the world and me covering that up by offering a bunch of other nonsense in front of the book. And really, while I won't distance myself from any of the episodes, it does make me laugh to think that I took old Mayor Pete so seriously as to actually pee on his campaign postcard they paid to send to me in Japan on air of this podcast. That was in episode 9, if you want to listen to that again. And if you really wanted to dig into why I don't like Mayor Pete, I spent the entirety of episode 6 sharing information on why I did so and why I think he is a cheat. But not to worry. We all spend too much time in the moment freaking out over shit that doesn't matter in the long run, and 2020 has given me plenty of reminders about that. As a result, and apologies if I've shared this on an official episode of the podcast already, though I don't think I have, the three mantras of 2020 for me, which I repeat often, are I don't know, we'll see, and adjust accordingly. So, With 20 official episodes to go before this podcast does... What? Who knows? Well, before I'm sure that season one will be over, all I can say is, who knows what topics we'll be addressing in the next 20. I'm glad to any of you hang with me, and yes, what we will do is we will definitely be releasing two chapters of the novel per episode. Which means, if I'm calculating correctly, this podcast will take us through the first week of June. At which point I hope to be preparing for, and maybe even leaving for, my postponed trip to the U.S. of A. But again, we'll see, and we will adjust accordingly. Okay, folks, strap into your seatbelts for episode 20 is about to take off. Are you in? Safe and secure? To quote one of the patron saints of this podcast, Is everybody in? Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The ceremony is about to begin. The entertainment for this evening is not new. You've seen this entertainment through and through. You have seen your birth, your life, your death. You may recall the rest. Did you have a good world when you died? Enough to base a movie on? Well, did you? Enjoy the show. A new listener asked me what I meant when I said that these times are fascinating. It's a great question, one which I've been pondering since he asked. I think I've always had a journalist sensibility, which means I enjoy being witness to history. There's a phrase that journalists write the first rough draft of history that, 
ironically, has some debate about who first said it and when. I'll link an article in the, in the show notes. It appears to go back to the last era in our world history where we went through a major existential threat on a global scale. That, of course, is the World War I and World War II era. Now, I bring this up because, as you all know, since that time, the fast pace of journalism and our modern lives has only increased, and it's made us, in my opinion, rather myopic, which is defined by the dictionary app on my aging iPhone as unable or unwilling to act prudently, short-sighted. Another definition, lacking tolerance or understanding, narrow-minded. And due to a combination of my character and my life experiences, especially my psychedelic experiences and facing my own mortality in my mid-twenties due to drug addiction, I've developed an ability to zoom out of my life and look at our human experience from a big-picture perspective. I'll address this topic in a future episode when I talk about what I see as the actual war that's going on in the 2020s, a war between culture and nature. For now, all I can say is that it is during periods like this one when I feel most alive, because it feels like we are playing for all the cards, and those cards include, of course, the possibility of death. And from my perspective, as well as my extensive research into near-death experiences, it's not death that I fear, but not fully living life. The following is a clip from a recent episode of the Joe Rogan podcast with his good friend and a personal favorite of mine, Duncan Trussell, as they talk about having this bigger perspective. Joe had been on a really good monologue about the awestruck experience you have when you go out camping and you look up and see the stars, and how we've become disconnected from that simply because we have lights everywhere. This clip starts with him referencing our current global slowdown. Let's have a listen. It's it's a reset button. It changes how you feel about life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also it seems like a lot of us have forgotten that we're going to die on top of all that. I mean, yeah. not only are you like looking up at this void filled with stars, but the thing you are is temporary. And that to me is... You know, the other day I'm like just washing dishes during this fucking pandemic and I'm thinking to myself, man, I feel so lucky to be washing dishes right now. I'm alive. I'm healthy. Mm. This is fucking it was a different kind of washing dishes than a week ago when I was able to or two weeks or before this shit started when I could order anything I fucking wanted off the Internet. It, it, suddenly I'm in a different world. Like, this is a world where, well, we got to wash these dishes because, man, if I get, like, if bugs come, I don't know if I want to call an exterminator right now. I don't know how many people I want in my house right now. I don't know what this shit is. So it's like suddenly these are, what you're experiencing is this kind of like, um, well, what does it say in the Bible that we both love so much? Uh, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I think you could easily translate that to, understanding your place in the universe sh should produce a kind of positive fear and trembling. Yeah. Not like you're, you're anxious or terrified, right. but just a kind of like, whoa, this doesn't last. Nothing about this lasts. And right now, everyone around the planet is getting a firsthand glimpse of that very truth, right? Yeah, all this, at once. One big dose. One big dose of it all at once, man. One big dose for people to recognize how much of what they concentrate on a daily basis, how much of what fills their consciousness is shit. Yeah. It's utter nonsense. Yeah. And we got tricked. We yeah. got tricked into thinking it would go on forever, and now we know it's not going to. And now we know, hey, look, this is a this is a terrible thing, but relatively speaking, Compared to super volcano, asteroid impact, it's compared to something solar flare, something really crazy that can happen and blow out all the power, yeah. which is 100% a possibility. Solar flares are 100% a possibility. And for people to not recognize that yeah. and, and just go through their life, it's just because we, we, we look at life as if what we've experienced while we're alive is the norm. But it's yeah. not. It's not the norm. It's just hard for you to recognize that your life is so short. 
Your life is so short that when they're measuring all the different catastrophes that have happened over the Earth, whether it's proven sites of asteroid impacts or proven sites of volcano eruptions or all these different things that have happened for sure and wiped out millions of people all over the world, they happen over a time span that's too big. Yeah. Our head doesn't get in there. Right. Our head doesn't go, what, what is 13,000 years is just some scratches on some paper in my head, my stupid head. Yeah. I don't know what 13,000 years means. I, I can't. I can't do it. But 13,000 years ago, they think, and there's more and more evidence every day, that there was some big impact on Earth. Yeah. And who, who fucking knows how many of those humans have gone through? Who knows? For the, the what I think scientists believe, what, what is it? Um, it's like 300,000 plus years we've been this, right? Is that the idea? Homo sapien? Something like that, yeah. Something like that, right? Bro, that ain't shit. Right. That's so short. That's so short just in the time that the, the Earth has been here, in the four point whatever billion years the Earth has been here. And that's so short in terms of the f almost 14 billion years the known universe has been here. Yeah. All of it's madness. Every single step along the way is madness. But we get stuck in these little time periods where nothing changes. And so we think that this is life. So we've built all these houses that only can work on electricity. How many fucking people have a real fireplace in their house that live in cold places? Yeah, man. They're banning those now. Right. So if they're banning fireplaces because they don't want to start fires, that's great as long as you can ensure the gas and the power is going to stay on. And I don't think you could do that. Yeah, we man. just think you can because you've done it for a hundred years. That's right. That's the thing. A yeah. hundred years is shit. A hundred years, the Industrial Revolution, the Roaring Twenties from from then to today. Yeah. Let's go 150. Let's get crazy. That ain't shit. Yeah. That ain't shit. The, to, to say this is how things are every day <laughs> is so dumb. It's especially to say it with in terms of the Earth, natural disasters, space anomalies, like so, not even anomalies. Big things that happen, like solar flares. They happen all the time, man. Yeah, man. Understanding your place in the universe should produce a kind of positive fear and trembling, Duncan said during that discussion. That's it, folks. You see, while I can of course feel the fear in all of this, a lot of it when you look at it from a big-picture perspective, is it really that scary at all? It's rather awesome. Now, I'll devote an episode in the future to why experiencing the ego dissolution during a good psychedelic experience is a good primer for death and an even better one for living a fuller life. But next I want to share a famous poem which reinforces this sense of how small we are and the hubris we have about how big we think we are. Next up, I'll read the poem Ozymandias, written by poet Percy Bysshe Shelley and published in a newspaper on January 11, 1818. That's right, folks. Newspapers published poetry back then. The background of this poem, quoting Wikipedia. In antiquity, Ozymandias was a Greek name for the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II. Shelley began writing his poem in 1817, soon after the British Museum's announcement that they had acquired a large fragment of a statue of Ramses II from the 13th century BCE. Some scholars believe Shelley was inspired by the acquisition. The theme of the poem is the fate of history and the ravages of time. Even the greatest men and the empires they forge are impermanent. Their legacies faded to decay into oblivion, and the hubris of us all for not recognizing this. Here's the poem. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculpture well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. <laughs>
Okay, in the opening I promised some music, so let's take a musical break. There is a key lyric in this song, which is full of great lyrics, which relates to the whole theme of this podcast. See if you can find it, and then, once the song's over, I'll tell you the answer. Here's Californication by one of my longtime favorites, the Red Hot Chili Peppers.
Okay, did you catch the lyric? Here it is. Destruction leads to a very rough road, but it also breeds creation. Again, this is a theme I'll return to again and again, but it's something I hope you can keep in mind right now. We are, as a collective, destroying things that are no longer serving us as we try to create something new. So, instead of focusing on the fear and the loss, devote a bit of time to what you love about life and what you want to create, okay? Last, I'll close with an essay I wrote, which I jokingly posted about on my Facebook page when I said this. Last summer, I had a choice, safety or adventure. I chose adventure. So you can blame me for all of this. So folks, stop blaming the virus, the Chinese, Donald Trump, or your Aunt Jeannie's knees. Blame yours truly. Now, here's the essay. The following is from an essay I wrote and published on August 13th, 2019. The title is Adventure or Safety? Which do you choose? I'm at a crossroads, literally. To my right, the bicycle path runs almost directly toward my house, about a 20-minute ride, and the sky above it is full of a uniform glowing white cloud, the kind of cloud that says the storm has passed and all will return to normal now. To my left, the path runs away from my house, but will eventually circle around to it, about an hour-long ride, but the sky is filled with the dark clouds that had just thrashed us with one of the strongest thunderstorms of the season, and as I ponder it, a jagged spear of lightning splits the clouds. Exciting, if a bit dangerous, I think, but I'm feeling energized, maybe even charged by the storm, and a longer ride seems like what I want to do. Still, is it the right choice? Am I taking an unnecessary risk if I go that way? Suddenly, I realize that what I'm pondering is the choice between adventure and safety. But that's not how my mind phrases it. No, as it often does when it wants me to really notice something, to actually pay attention, it spits out an alliterative phrase, but this time it uses both my native tongue and the language of the locale I live in, Japanese. It asks, Boken? or boredom. Boken is Japanese for adventure or risk. Too often in my life I chose the latter, boredom. I don't frame it that way, of course. I usually use words like pragmatic, safe, smart, reliable, things that make me feel better for having made that choice. And before I go on, I want to make something clear. This post will argue for choosing Boken, but that doesn't mean it's always the right choice. In fact, on this late July evening, I chose Boken, but that may not have been the wise choice. But hey, that's one of the features of a good adventure. It ain't always going to be easy, and if your adventure is at all like mine was this steamy July night, you might even face your own mortality during it. So yeah, after calling my wife to let her know I'd be home in an hour or so, I went left. First pedal, second pedal... I'm off, and another electric spear pierces the sky. A bit on the nose, I think, to the narrator behind the events. Try this sometime. It doesn't matter if it's a lightning-lit journey or a boring boardroom meeting. Imagine you are a video game character. You feel you've got some free will, and you do, but there are people out there, the video game players, playing your character. And if your game is good enough, others might tune into your channel. So yes, in another dimension, you are on a, quote, YouTube channel of some alien teenagers streaming the playing of your character. Now check it. Do you think many people are going to tune in if you are always choosing boredom? Even worse, are any of these players even going to play your game if your default is the easy, boring path? I mean, maybe some would still play you. Maybe these aliens have lives like ours, jobs that numb them, families that aggravate them, and they just need some entertainment to veg out to. Yeah, let's play good old boring Brian tonight. No danger there. I don't even have to think or feel anything to play him. Fair enough. But is that the game you want to play? Or do you want to play the game where radical, unexpected things happen? A game that will surprise, scare, enthrall, and elate you? 
think on that one for a second. Feel it. So there I am, biking. I've got some tunes on. The Disco Biscuits, my favorite band to bike to. Good, energetic, ever-evolving, solid rhythms combined with ethereal, soul-provoking guitar and keyboard licks. Such music helps me connect with my body, mind, and soul. I approach the halfway chill point, or at least that's my name for it. That's because when I do this route from my house, it's about 12 kilometers into a 25-kilometer ride. Today, it's about 4 kilometers into a 16km ride, so not the halfway point. However, if you look at the map in the picture on the blog post, you can see this corner, the very furthest southeast on the map, and when you turn back, you start heading west and back toward home. In addition, there is a great natural grassy field you can stop and chill out there. In late spring, I took my son on that ride after a particularly rough morning with him, and we had a good father-son chat there. So yeah, this corner means something. But on this night, I keep going, and after cycling for a few hundred meters, I find myself on an elevated berm which parallels a golf course for a few kilometers. The skies keep flashing lightning, but I'm not hearing the thunder, so it's far away. There's still some moisture in the air, and it feels good. It bent up to 106 Fahrenheit on the heat index that afternoon, and I'd biked over 18 kilometers in the heat of it, so the darkness, mist, and lower temp feels refreshing. To my left is the golf course. My right is a suburban rural Japanese community. It dawns on me. There's nobody out. Just me. This time, I hear the thunder. And then another rumble. What if? This is it. A bolt from above. I'm fried into another reality. Someone will find the carcass. Yeah, me. Sprawled out in some disfigured way. Nah, that's not how I'd stage it. No, I'm laid out with a blissful smile on my face, dead to be sure, but laying next to my bike, dying doing something I loved. Yeah, that's all tragic, but that's not the point here. What if these are the last minutes of my life? The fear, it hits me. How silly, how stupid. This is why nobody bikes in thunderstorms, Brian. You're going to be on some Darwin Award list. Probably a distant runner-up, but still, kind of a stupid way to go. But no, no, it's not. I mean, I don't. It's not. What is this life for if I'm going to die right here? What is it for? I'm fine. I can hear some chuckles, a few high-fives, a few relieved breaths. My game players and viewers have been watching this. I'm interesting, worth tuning into. And that's when I know I'm going to be fine. They don't want to lose an adventurer. A boring dude? Well, they wouldn't even watch, would they? So maybe he's safe too, only because nobody's tuned in. Or wait, no, he's safe because he went home away from the storm. But did he feel the rain? Did he appreciate the coolness of the dark? Maybe, probably. But what he didn't do? He didn't have a check-in with mortality. And that's when it strikes me. An adventure quite often is accompanied by risk by danger, by even a threat to one's life. So yeah, sometimes we get hurt on adventures. Sometimes we get scared. Our stuff gets damaged or stolen. Do we learn anything, though? Maybe we do, maybe not. Maybe the only thing I learned is I can get a blog post out of choosing adventure. Maybe for me that's enough. What makes choosing an adventure worthwhile for you? Thanks for listening. Okay, that's it for today's show. This has been an epic one, but it's not done yet. Oh no, because the next two chapters of The Teacher and the Tree Man are equally as epic, and I think you are going to enjoy them. Will Sylvanus get out of the tree, or will he die trying? Find out. Until next time, thanks again for listening. Chapter 19. Letting Go of What You Know Lucas had all sorts of new experiences in those few weeks, so why not another? This time it was Larry, not only on time, but fifteen minutes early. Breadcrumbs still falling from his jam-rimmed lips, Lucas opened the door, 
and found his old friend in a psychedelic green and blue tie-dyed t-shirt layered on top of a long-sleeved brown sweater. He wore corduroy patch pants with an olive green base, but with every color and pattern known to modern man etched into its various patches. He also wore a smile and glowing eyes, so Lucas couldn't help but think Larry had dipped into his supplies on the drive. Smoky, Larry said, bear-hugging Lucas so tightly the button on Lucas's pants burst open. Good to see you too, Larry, Lucas said, trying to shield his friend from seeing his pants. Wow, Larry said, noticing. I knew you'd be happy to see me, but take it easy. Lucas couldn't help but laugh. Leave it to Larry to make a joke of an embarrassing situation. Well, you know, Lucas said, feigning embarrassment. Larry laughed. Now come on in before the neighbors get suspicious. Larry entered the house and asked, Where are the girls? Off shopping for some fall clothes, Lucas said. Just you and me for a while. They spent the next hour working in the spare bedroom, all the while chatting about one of their favorite topics, music. Like Lucas, Larry hadn't been going to as many concerts as in their younger days. His reason was different, though. His globetrotting made it hard to be in the right place at the right time. He did tell Lucas he'd seen some pretty far-out music performed by locals in some of the poorest places on the planet. They get into something of a circle, each with a different instrument. Here, Larry quoted the air, and then they just get into a serious groove. Like a drum circle? Lucas asked. Yeah, similar. But one difference is the singing. They aren't shy about singing. Bet you had to put up with some pretty rough tunes, miss, Lucas joked as he tossed an old Quiet Riot CD into a bag for the garage sale. Actually, Larry said, not so much. Those folks sing so much that their singing is second nature, and usually pretty powerful. See, for them, singing is communal, and makes them feel more connected to each other. Interesting, Lucas said. You just reminded me that I read a study a while back about how singing releases endorphins into the brain, and can help us unblock negative emotions. I wouldn't be surprised, Larry said. I mean, every time I play music, it's the singing that really gets me off. I just remembered something else, Lucas said. It was from a talk I heard by Terence McKenna. Ah, the great psychedelic pioneer. I miss him already, said Larry, mourning the man's passing, which took place just over one year before. Absolutely, Lucas said. Anyway, he was saying if you are in the early stages of a powerful psychedelic trip, one of the best things you can do if you are feeling overwhelmed is to start singing. He said it gets the blood flowing better in the brain. Fascinating, Larry said, reaching down under the bed and finding a book. Jeepers, would you look at that? Lucas looked to see what treasure Larry had recovered. It was a copy of The Archaic Revival by Terence McKenna. Synchro freakinicity, Larry shouted, and the two men laughed. After they finished their cleaning, Lucas and Larry headed into the forest. They were sharing a rare, quiet moment as they traversed the muddy slope when Larry finally spoke up. Bro, before we do this, I think I'd better ask you something, Larry said, in about as serious a tone as Lucas had ever heard from his friend. Shoot, Lucas said, hoping to lighten the mood. In all seriousness, Larry started, I wonder how much thought you've put into setting this man free. Lucas laughed. What? Larry asked. Nothing much, Lucas said. It's just a funny question coming from such a live-in-the-moment kind of guy. Anyway, I've given it some thought, but probably not as much as it deserves. Why do you ask? Well, Larry said, exhaling a frosty breath as they reached the bottom of the canyon, I just wonder if you've considered the practical implications of having a long-term houseguest who has no historical background. Whoa. Never underestimate Larry's capacity to surprise or to get straight to the point. Larry was often a prankster, but he also had a very deep, and yes, practical side. Even though he knew Larry well, Lucas often forgot this. To be perfectly honest, Lucas said as he hopped over Salisbury Creek, I haven't. I've been so focused on things moment by moment, just trying to get him out, that I haven't spent much time contemplating the future. Understandable, Larry said. If all goes well, the moment's about to change, big time. So I just felt you maybe needed to start giving some attention to this. I mean, do you know anything about his background? A little, Lucas said as they neared the grove. He told me his name was Luke Green. Well, it's a start. Have you ever asked him about his past? Yeah, but he mostly doesn't remember, Lucas said. However, 
His mushroom journeys have shed some light on it. I just haven't gotten around to asking him how much light. Whoa, Larry said, stopping at the edge of the grove as he laid his eyes on Sylvanus for the first time. Unbelievable. Lucas looked up and saw Sylvanus, all four barky limbs sticking out of the tree along with his head, and the tree man smiled and said, Something you want to ask me, Paul? Um, yes, Lucas said. But first, I want you to meet my friend Larry. Lucas couldn't be sure, but he swore the air became chillier. Nice to meet you, Sylvanus said warmly. Larry's been the guy who gave me all the mushrooms, and he's got something special today. The air seemed to warm, and Sylvanus said, Well, thank you, Larry. You very well might be a lifesaver. Larry still hadn't moved from his spot at the edge of the grove. His round eyes were even larger than usual. Finally, he stuttered, Nice, um, not nice to meet you. I'm, uh, I'm glad I've been able to help. Yes, you really have, Sylvanus said. Now, Paul, what did you want to ask me? Oh, yeah, Lucas said. Why am I so nervous? We were wondering how much you know about your past. Well, Sylvanus said, thanks to those mushrooms, I know more now than when you asked me a few weeks ago. As you know, my name is Luke Green. Here's what you don't know. After Sylvanus filled them in on the details, Lucas said, Voice City. I wonder how that's spelled. B-O-Y-S-E? B-O-I-C-E? Are you sure you're saying it right? That's how the guy said it in my vision, Sylvanus said. Why do you ask? Well, I'm just wondering if he meant the city in Idaho, Lucas said. But it's pronounced the Z sound, not an S, and I don't think it's ever been called Boyce City. Well, I suppose it could be that, Sylvanus said. I know he definitely said it with an S sound, and city on the end. Okay, Lucas said, just one more mystery we'll have to investigate. Let's look at what we do know, Larry said. We know he was involved in World War II, so let's work backwards. If we assume that as a soldier he was a relatively young man in the early 1940s, that means those memories of his formative years took place in the 1920s and 1930s. What was happening in our country at that time? Uh, I don't know, Lucas said. The Jazz Age and, yeah, the Great Depression? Good start, Larry said, while Sylvanus watched this fascinating exchange. But something else. Think Grapes of Wrath. The Dust Bowl, Lucas said. Yeah, Larry confirmed, and we know that it took place in the nation's midsection, the Oklahoma and Texas Panhandle, and parts of Kansas, Colorado, Nebraska, and New Mexico. Wow, you really know your stuff, Lucas said. History major, remember? Larry asked. Anyway, we aren't going to solve this mystery right this second, but it's a good start. Wait a minute. What? Lucas asked, concerned. It's just that you know I've got to leave town on Monday, Larry said. And I've been trying to figure out how I can do that, but also give you some assistance with this. You've done more than enough, Lucas said. No, Larry said. Let me finish. I love doing research, Paul. Let me do the favor of digging into this. You are going to have your hands full dealing with the present and the future. Let me handle the past. The time had come. Larry did his best to explain the procedure to Sylvanus, attempting to keep his tone both serious and light, so as to put the tree man into an ideal mindset for such an experience. He also prepared the sacrament physically, sprinkling a bit of the brown powder on top of a small bud of marijuana. Before we begin, there's one thing I think I ought to tell you, Larry said. What? A key thing to remember during a psychedelic experience is this phrase, trust and let go. Can you say it? Sure, Sylvanus said. He repeated the phrase several times, and then Larry said, if you do that, you'll be good to go. Now, ready? As I'm ever going to be, the tree man answered. Larry lit the match. Sylvanus took in as much smoke as he could for as long as he could, and then, just before he exhaled, it started. Lucas was scared. Since he really didn't know anything about 5-MeO-DMT, he'd had no idea what to expect. But he certainly hadn't expected this. Sylvanus had exhaled a large cloud of thick white smoke, and momentarily Lucas and Larry couldn't see his face through the smoke, and they didn't hear a sound. When the smoke began to clear, that was Lucas's first warning. Sylvanus's eyes were rolling unnaturally in his head, 
so that all Lucas and Larry could see were their slightly yellowed whites. That doesn't look good, man, Lucas said to Larry. His friend didn't answer, but put his hand on Lucas's shoulder as if to say, wait. There was nothing else he could do, and that was partly why he felt so anxious. It was beyond his control. Larry had said nothing about this stuff, possibly leading to overdose or death, but Lucas wondered that perhaps Larry didn't know. Just wait. And as he did, Sylvanus's eyes began to roll around even faster, and he started muttering gibberish that sounded like no language Lucas had ever heard. Sylvanus? Sylvanus? I don't think he can respond, Paul, Larry said. Not yet. Are you sure you know what this stuff does? Lucas asked. Yes, Paul, I'm... How do you know? Lucas yelled, looking at his friend in the eye, searching for a lie. You said that you've never tried it. How do you know it won't kill him? Calm down, Paul, Larry said. I know you're worried, but don't be. But how do... Trust me, Paul. Please. Lucas looked into those killer eyes of his friend and saw that Larry believed what he was saying. He had to trust him. That was when Sylvanus's limbs started flailing about. The tree began shaking, and the two men were knocked to the ground. Repeating infinite patterns, from small to large to small again, the world was patterns. No matter if it was big or small, the pattern was the same. What is this? Sylvanus thought. What isn't it? A rainbow of colors, colors he never knew existed, swam around his mind, and he felt like he was drifting upward into them, until all that was left were those patterns surrounding him. As the experience intensified, he became less and less. Oh no, Sylvanus thought, where am I going? I? Suddenly he remembered the phrase Larry had taught him, trust and let go, trust and let go. So he did. The intense colors were merging into an intense white, a white so pure it was radiating heat. But this heat was more than a physical sensation. It struck Sylvanus's core and filled him with awe, gratitude, and then love. Soon, all was love, pure ecstasy, basking, basking, glowing, absorbing. This was it, all of it. Sylvanus's body, limbs, and head gyrated in a way that reminded Lucas of a pit of snakes. No logic, just pure, energized chaos. And as the speed increased, somehow the ground Lucas and Larry sat on began to shake with it. At first, it was like how a tent shakes in gusty wind, but then it became more like a slowly building earthquake. This was not good, Lucas thought because a forest full of ancient giants was not the sort of place a small human wanted to be in the middle of an earthquake. "'What's happening?' he shouted over the rumbling ground to Larry, who was trying to pull himself up off the ground with little luck. "'I don't know, man!' Meanwhile, the he that was Sylvanus had disappeared. Or had he? No, it was more like he'd merged, become one with the pure white love." He had no memory of where he'd come from, nor did it seem to matter. All that mattered was that he'd arrived. He was here. He was home. Basking, basking, soaking it all up. The connectiveness, the awe, the beauty, the love. But then the emotions began to dim along with the white light, and a few colors appeared on the fringes. He felt a descending and an enlarging of him. The colors became stronger and more multifaceted, and the physical sensation of him began to reemerge. He was separate. Or was he? No, he wasn't. But maybe he was. Confusion, understanding, thoughts pouring into him from all directions, a bombardment, a shaking, a quaking, a quickening, and an awakening. Larry's I don't know had scared Lucas more than anything, because only a minute ago, Larry had said with all of his heart to trust him that this was all going to be all right, but now even he was unhinged. This was most definitely not going according to plan. Lucas tried to focus on the shaking tree, but Sylvanus's body was moving so quickly it was a blur, as though it was spinning like a top. And worse, bits of bark had started to shoot out of the tree like little missiles, and a few smaller pieces grazed off the top of Lucas's head. They weren't big enough to do real damage, but they still stung. Still overwhelmed by what was happening, suddenly Lucas felt Larry grab his arm and shout, We gotta take cover, man! 
The fear in Larry's voice was convincing, so Lucas held on to his friend, and they stumbled over the shaking ground, dodging some of the bark bullets, but not all of them. Even the wind had picked up and added to the roar of the quaking earth. The two men reached the bottom of the grove and took cover behind a tree, when suddenly a crack, loud as a rifle shot, split the air, and the tree man's body shot out of the tree, spinning like an Olympic high diver with superhuman speed, all in that same long moment where time had conspired to allow Lucas and Larry to perceive multiple events happening at once. They heard another loud crack and realized it was Sylvanus's tree, and it was falling toward them. Somehow, Lucas pulled his friend out of the way of the missile that was Sylvanus, who flew past them into the clearing, and then Larry returned the favor by grabbing Lucas's sweater and yanking him in the opposite direction, just in time as the tree came crashing into the tree at the bottom of the grove, wedging itself into the other tree and forming something that looked like a ladder. And just like that, the ground stopped shaking, the wind stopped howling, and a deep silence descended over the forest. Sylvanus, though, was gone. Sylvanus's eyes opened. He saw pine needles and the brownness, and felt his head. What was that under it? What was it? It was the ground, and he began to laugh. Sylvanus? Sylvanus? Lucas urged, digging through the fallen limbs and bark that had crashed to the earth in the calamity. Larry was digging, too, both men snapping branches and throwing them behind them, and finally they saw his body. It had burrowed into the earth, creating a protective hole underneath the large limbs of the fallen tree that had been his home for so many years. Sylvanus! Lucas yelled, and then he heard something that somehow shook him more than every crazy thing they had just experienced. Sylvanus was laughing. Sylvanus heard the voice of his friend, his savior, Paul Lucas, and managed to control his laughter and open his eyes. When he saw Lucas and Larry looking at him with concerned looks, the laughter started again. The two men's speeches relaxed some, and Sylvanus said, I've seen everything, and I've been everywhere. Lucas and Larry looked baffled, but then it started. Sylvanus's laughter turned into a cackling like a benevolent wizard, and the sound of that laughter, the realization that the man in the tree was now a man on the forest floor, sent Lucas into his own hysterical brand of laughter, and Larry was not far behind. It was a deep, wide-open laughter, a laughter of life in the face of death, and soon it was augmented by tears, tears the size of Texas and sap, lots of sap, and all three men sat there in that soggy depression in the ground under the fallen tree, laughing, crying, hugging, just grateful, grateful for it all, celebrating their journey, their friendship, their lives. After what felt like eternity, but was probably closer to a few minutes, the emotion subsided a bit, and before Lucas or Larry could ask Sylvanus one question, the tree man's eyes closed, and he began to snore. And Larry and Lucas started laughing all over again. It was a good thing Larry joined Lucas that historic day, as it took both of their strength to haul Sylvanus's body, still covered in a thick bark, all the way back to Lucas's house. The tree man was in a deep sleep, which worried Lucas, but Larry told him not to worry, as his breathing was consistent and his body showed no signs of trauma. This time Lucas trusted his friend, for even though Lucas had momentarily began to doubt in Larry at the height of Sylvanus's liberation, Larry had been right. It was going to be all right. They laid the tree man down in the bed in the spare bedroom, and the two men spent twenty minutes just standing there, watching this unbelievable being, slumbering away as though there was nothing out of the ordinary going on at all. What they'd been witness to had the resonance of a dream, but it had been as real as reality gets. Neither man could find words to describe it, almost feeling like to do so would spoil it, so they didn't bother. Instead, they shared a smoke in the backyard, and as the effects of the herb took effect, Lucas finally broke the silence. What do you say to lunch? Chapter 20. A Unique House Guest Terry and Scarlet returned home after lunch. When the perky little girl showed her dad that she'd bought a beautiful green and brown dress, Lucas told her he was happy to hear it, but then said, Honey, we need to be a little bit quiet today. Why, Daddy? she asked. Lucas figured it was best not to beat around the bush. 
but he was still having trouble putting Sylvanus's liberation into words, so he simply told the two ladies to follow him. Scarlet's mouth dropped open when she saw the barky man sleeping peacefully, and Terry reacted much the same. How long has he, uh, been sleeping? Terry asked. A couple hours, Lucas said, and it doesn't look like that's going to change any time soon. No, it doesn't, Terry said, closing the door. I'm sure he needs his rest. How did he get out? Lucas and Larry looked at each other and then laughed. What? Terry asked, fearing she was perhaps the butt of some joke. Um, sorry, Lucas said, clearing his throat. It's just sort of impossible to describe. Yeah, Larry agreed. It was only the most powerful experience of my life. And considering my life, that's saying something. Terry laughed. So Scarlet did too. When they all regained their composure, Terry said, So, what next? Question of the day, Larry said. Indeed, Lucas said a bit more solemnly. We haven't really talked about this, honey. But I think it might be best to take this slowly. That means, for now, just focusing on caring for Sylvanus physically. Good plan, I think, Larry said. And the good news is, nobody's going to expect him at work come Monday. Again, they all laughed. Terry, I want to tell you the same thing I told Paul, Larry said. For whatever reason, I am also a part of this. So just because my work is going to take me out of town, doesn't mean my role is over. I want to do whatever I can to help. Thanks, Larry, Terry said. Yeah, he's going to be our Sylvanus historian, Lucas said. Try to get to the bottom of who he was. Now, I think it might be wise to go to Costco and load up on some serious food. Carbohydrates, you know. I bet Sylvanus is going to want to chow down when he comes to. Okay, Terry said. Do you want me to stay here with him? Yeah, Lucas said, if that's okay. Should be a piece of cake, Terry said. After all, he's just a big sleeping baby. Yeah, Larry said, and Lucas braced himself for the joke. But what if he needs his diaper changed? Terry slugged the crazy man in the shoulder, and Lucas laughed. I should have warned you about that wicked left, bro. Dang, Terry, Larry said, rubbing his shoulder. Teach me to make a joke at your expense. Terry smiled and then said, Paul, I have to admit, I am worried about all this. Me too, honey, Lucas said. But... Cliché as it may be, all we can do is take things one step at a time. When Lucas, Larry, and Scarlet returned home from Costco that afternoon, the tree man was still sleeping. Any sign of life? Lucas asked, a bit worried. Not much, Terry replied. But he's okay. He did scream out once. I couldn't catch exactly what he said, but it sounded like Dolores. I bet it was Doris, Lucas said, and Terry looked at him inquisitively. We think that was a sister of his who may have died. The adults unloaded all the groceries while Scarlet happily broke into a large container of her favorite chocolates and sat down with a book. After they finished the task, Lucas said, Honey, you do remember Larry and I are going to see Dylan tonight. Yeah, I remember, you lucky jerks, she said. Please don't strike me, lady, Larry mocked and ducked out of the way of another left. Seriously, I'm sorry I didn't get you a ticket. Nah, Terry said, don't worry. It's probably better. I can rest and watch Sylvanus. Just do me a favor, Larry. What's that? Try to keep this guy somewhat sober tonight. He needs his rest. You got it, Larry said, though Lucas felt a little disappointed by his friend's acquittal. Still, he knew Terry was right. Besides, he was riding such a natural high from the events of that magical day, he doubted he would benefit from anything more. On the way to the concert, Larry again reminded Lucas he was going to play a role in helping his friend with Sylvanus. I'm going to be in communique via the net, he said. Communique? Lucas mocked. Yeah, French for in touch, Larry said. I'm going to check in frequently. If there's anything you need... I got it, Larry. Don't worry, I'm not going to let you off the hook this time. Good. I am wondering about your opinion about something, Lucas said. What's that? Well... It's about whether or not to introduce the world to Sylvanus. Hmm, Larry said, gripping the steering wheel a little tighter as he maneuvered the car into the exit lane for the Seattle Center. That's a hard one. No easy answer. But you know, I think you were on to something earlier today. I was? Yeah, you know, the whole one-step-at-a-time deal, Larry said. Right now, 
You've just got to take care of Sylvanus physically. This cannot be an easy experience for his body. Good point. But I'd add something to one step at a time, and that's trust your intuition. If you do that, I'm pretty sure you'll know when the time is right, if it ever is, to tell the world. Thanks, Lucas said. I guess I also have to think about who to tell. Ha! <laughs> that too, Larry said. That's something I can maybe help you with due to my media connections. Cool, I hadn't thought of that, Lucas said. He was starting to contemplate how strangely, how perfectly, these events were working themselves out, almost as if they were in some sort of symphonic dance of destiny together. But what you'll really have to consider is, which media outlet do you trust the most to accurately tell his and your story? None of them, Lucas said, and Larry laughed. Well, bro, I hear that, Larry said, as he parked the car on a steep side street on the edge of Queen Anne Hill. But you might be surprised at how many good, trustworthy media outlets are out there, especially now with the recent internet boom. Cool, Lucas said, and with that hopeful thought in both of their minds, the two men exited the car and began the trek to the Seattle Center Coliseum, where one of the world's musical sages awaited. As expected, Dylan and his world-class band put on a stellar show that night. About the only unexpected thing for Lucas was how lively the legend was, sometimes hopping across the stage, taking solos, and basically looking like he was having the time of his life. Watching this 60-year-old musician act so energetically made Lucas reflect that a person's energy wasn't strictly determined by age, but by doing what you loved. And all these songs, albums, and concerts later, it was blatantly clear Dylan was still in love with music. On the walk out of the show, a couple in front of Lucas and Larry were discussing their show highlights. For me, it was Masters of War, said the gray-haired woman. It was just so good to hear the passion in Dylan's voice when he sang it. Good to hear him sounding like the frustrated young folk singer challenging the status quo. Yes, Lucas said. Sorry to butt in, but I couldn't agree with you more. It's scary how bloodthirsty our country has become in just a few short weeks since 9-11. Well, hold on tight, said the man, whose soulful eyes rested behind a pair of John Lennon-style glasses. Things are only going to get more intense, I'm afraid. The intensity level had certainly been turned up at Lucas's house the next morning, as Sylvanus finally woke from his slumber. The tree men stumbled out to the dining room, where the Lucases were just finishing breakfast. Lucas saw Scarlet look away with some fear in her eyes. He understood, as Sylvanus was a tall, strange-looking man whose body was covered in bark. "'Good morning, sleepyhead,' Lucas said. "'Paul, Terry, and—' Here, Sylvanus slowly got down on his knees, looked Scarlet in the eye, and winked. "'Scarlet!' The little girl's face relaxed and smiled at this simple gesture, while Lucas thought how nice, if a little old-fashioned, the man's social skills were, considering he'd been isolated in a tree for the past several years. "'I bet you were starving,' Lucas said as he pulled up a chair for the tree man. "'Starving?' "'He means very hungry,' Terry explained. Sylvanus smiled and said, "'Yes, I am.' "'Well, it's not the usual forest fare, no ladybugs or beetles.' "'I'm sure it's fine,' Sylvanus said. "'If I can eat those mushrooms, I'm sure I can eat anything.' "'Uh-oh,' Lucas thought. But before he could distract her, Scarlet said, "'What mushrooms?' "'Just some special mushrooms that are only meant for men stuck in the sides of trees,' Terry said. "'Which means, thankfully, I'll never have to eat them again,' Sylvanus said. "'No, you won't,' Lucas said. "'Here.' He passed a bowl with various berries, granola, and yogurt to Sylvanus. Try this. Lucas had to help Sylvanus dish the food onto his plate, but the tree man was a quick study and soon was able to dish his own food. Lucas had been right. Sylvanus was ravenous, and not only was it fun to watch how much the tree man ate, but also how much pleasure he was taking from all these new things. He must have said, Delicious, twenty times or so, and by the tenth time, Scarlet began to say it together while giggling. As he neared the end of his meal, Lucas said, We've got a lot to talk about, and a lot to teach you, but let's take it slow and just focus on the task at hand. One step at a time, right, Daddy? asked Pigtail Scarlet with a smile. Is she mocking me? Lucas thought, and then chuckled at his insecurity. That's right. Okay, Sylvanus said, I'll just follow your lead. 
Well, one thing we need to discuss is when and how to tell the world about you, Lucas said. Not yet, Sylvanus answered quickly. That's a fast answer, Lucas said. Don't you think we might be able to save the forest if we called Wilson at the post today? Before Sylvanus could answer, Terry said, You know that wouldn't happen, honey. Why not? Lucas asked. Because Sylvanus is no longer in the forest, she said. Yeah, but what if we can convince them that the forest is his home, Lucas asked. Doesn't that change things? I don't think so, Terry said. It doesn't matter, Sylvanus said. I'm not ready to deal with this. So you're just going to let the forest die? Lucas said, not hiding the anger in his voice. That's it? No, Paul, Sylvanus said. I'm not. I hate that the forest will be destroyed, just as much as you do. But what can we do? What can I do? Fuck! Lucas yelled, startling everyone. I don't know, but can't you try? Sylvanus sighed. Paul, we've been trying. But you told me this week that the judge's decision was final. Hard as it is, we have to accept it. No, Lucas hissed. I don't have to accept it, and I won't. Sylvanus cast his glance down, and Lucas could tell it was over. Much as he wanted to challenge Sylvanus, wanted to somehow force him to change his mind, he could see in Sylvanus's dejected slouch that it would do no good. Sorry, Paul, Sylvanus said. I just can't tell the world. Yet. Besides, I'd like to clean up some. And here he pointed at his barky body, which seemed to be shedding like a snake. Well, that's the dilemma, Lucas said. If people are going to believe your story, they are going to have to see you before you lose all that bark. That is, if you lose all that bark. Understood, Sylvanus said. Just not today, okay? I think I need to just rest for now. And with that, Sylvanus excused himself from the table and returned to the spare bedroom, where he spent the rest of the day and all the night in a deep, peaceful sleep. The Lucas family also rested. Lucas had thought about returning to the forest one last time, but decided against it. He felt like yesterday's activities were the final memories he wanted to have of the place. Not only had the experience been powerful, it had come to symbolize a small but important victory in this battle for Lucas. And if he went out there today, he feared he'd end up dwelling on the fate of the forest, a fate that he'd fought so hard to prevent but ultimately had failed at stopping. That Monday at school, Lucas was distracted all day. Fortunately, he gave the kids some quizzes, and they watched some movies, so his teaching duties were limited. It was as, almost as though he was going through the post-MDMA Tuesday blues again, but this time it was a come-down from Saturday's intense natural high. Yet he felt it was more than that, and when he got within a mile of his house, he could feel it his cherished section of Last Rush Canyon was being destroyed. He could hear Sylvanus weeping from the driveway. Sylvanus, of course! The tree man was likely taking this even harder than him. Lucas ran to the door, fumbled for his key, somehow found the lock, and burst into the house, shouting, Sylvanus! Sylvanus! There was no answer, but Lucas didn't need one. Instinctively, his body moved him to the spot where the tree man was, in the living room, curled in the fetal position under a blanket on the floor, slowly rocking, softly sobbing. But that wasn't all. Every few minutes, the tree man's body winced, occasionally shuddering violently. And the tears, the tears which were still as much sap as tears, just kept on coming, so much that the blanket was sticky and soaked through. Lucas went to the bathroom and found a few tissue boxes and brought them to Sylvanus, first dabbing in his face until the rivulets of tears, sap, had been erased, leaving an outline of their path through his barky face. Again, the tree man shuddered, and to Lucas it looked like he was in pain, Sylvanus said. It hurts. Lucas didn't know how that was possible, but he'd long given up trying to define what was or wasn't possible for Sylvanus. Lucas had controlled himself until now, but being there with Sylvanus, who was not trying to deny any of his feelings, finally caused the floodgates to break open, and he began to cry too. He cried for every tall tree stretching toward the sky, for every small tree longing to be as big as the others, for every fallen tree 
no longer with its brothers, but home to so many mushrooms, lichens, spiders, and beetles. For Salisbury Creek, and every fish and insect in it, for the leaves, for the ferns, for the bracken, for the blackberry bushes that had nourished him in the summer months, for every sunlit log that had provided him rest, for every gentle breeze that had relaxed him, for every smell of the trees in the air that had given him solace, for every beetle and every bug, for every bear and bat, for every squirrel that had chattered at him from the trees, for every deer that had locked a gaze with him, for the one deer that had led him astray and right to Sylvanus, for the grove of the twelve trees, that magical circle which had been there long before Lucas and would have been there long after, had there not been some greedy people with no connection to this life-dwelling and life-sustaining forest except as another plot of land to be harvested and turned into something very few people truly needed, something so publicly beneficial as yet another outlet shopping mall. Lucas's tears began to transform, to mutate into rage, into something he didn't want to own, let alone deal with. Fuck them! Fuck them! Fuck those fuckers! Fucking bastards! The greedy, heartless bastards! His voice boomed around the house, and he carried on until he was too hoarse to scream any more, and until Sylvanus wrapped the saddened, enraged man in a barky embrace and rocked him until the rage had passed. At last, Lucas calmly said, This is not over, Sylvanus. Not over. Sylvanus continued to hold Lucas, dabbing his tears until the first box of tissues had been exhausted. No, Sylvanus said. This forest may be gone, but it's not forgotten. Because you are right. This is not over. Not by a long shot.